Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you yet again last week. We talked about stewardship, and I promised you that this week we would talk about, we would start a series on the epistle of Paul, the apostle, to the church at Rome, to the Romans. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com for more information or to contact us. You can also reach me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. I hope you'll write that down. I would like to hear from you, particularly on this series of episodes on the Book of Romans. Now, Josh Brown, the owner of the very capable production company that produces this podcast at his productions, told me some time ago in early consultation that I didn't want to be just another just another Bible study podcast. And I have listened to Josh, and that is true, and we have enjoyed success. You have provided lots of positive feedback, but I want to take a few episodes here, and I hope you'll enjoy them. I hope you'll give me your feedback to talk about this most important book of the Bible. And I'm going to do it in a way, God willing, that in kind of a storytelling way after we get started. Today is a bit of background, but but before we do that, I, I want, by way of introduction, I want to tell you that this book of the Bible in particular has meant so much to me and to my family. And it somehow feels wrong to say that Romans is my favorite book of the Bible. And I know I, I sound like a lot of Reformed people who believe that in the doctrines of grace, for example, who would choose Romans. I would also choose the Gospel of John. I would choose the other Gospels, and I would choose Hebrews as other favorites. Others of Paul's epistles are also among the favorites. But there's something going on here in Romans, and it has to do, I think, with the way Paul wrote it and the reasons he wrote it. And I think a little bit of a history lesson could be perhaps helpful. I realize this is just a reminder for for many of you. If you want to read Paul's story, and you've probably done this before, but go to Acts chapter 9 and read verses 1 to 31 of Acts 9 for the story of Paul's conversion. And just as an aside, we talk a lot about Saul's name being changed to Paul and so on. And I don't find that in scripture. I have a pastor friend who who kind of shares this, I don't think it's a concern, but just kind of a novelty, this knowledge that that we say that his name changed from Saul to Paul. Well, it, well, it might have. The, the reference to him changes in scripture at that point to Paul. But there's no real biblical proof that his, that his name was changed. Interestingly, Paul might be a nickname or Saul might be a nickname. In any case, has nothing to do with this epistle, really. 
But if you'll read that story in Acts 9, I think it's a helpful backdrop to this epistle of Paul. There's always a question, interestingly, so so Paul writes this letter, this compendium of theology, and and we always ask, well, why is Romans so thorough? Why are these 16 chapters so thorough and so beautiful and so well-written? And they scream, we'll talk about some of the themes, but they just, the gospel just is screamed from every page, shouted from every page of this letter. And why is that? We'll, we'll talk about that. But one of the, one of the arguments that is often made, and it's made by the Catholic Church, and I'm, I'm not picking on Catholics per se, but one of the arguments is that the, the church at Rome was founded by Peter, by St. Peter, by the Apostle Peter. And that's just not, that doesn't stand up historically very well. Paul didn't mention Peter, for example, among the 27 people he names in the last chapter of the book of Romans when he's kind of winding it down. He mentions 27 people, he doesn't name Peter. We really don't have based on the timing of this writing, we, we really don't have any historical evidence that Peter was ever in Rome. And obviously the founder of the church at Rome would have to have been there, wouldn't he? So there are really kind of two possibilities for the founding of the church at Rome. Just everyday simple believers who were present on the day of Pentecost could have been founded by them. And then Families from Paul's churches or others in Asia Minor might have migrated west and settled in Rome. But this appears to be a church, this church at Rome, appears to be one that didn't really have apostolic founding. Another question that comes up, and I realize this can seem complicated, we're going to try to unpack it as we go here to make it less complicated, And I realize for some of you, these principles are so elementary, but I think these are helpful reminders. But I think we need to answer the question, was the church at Rome Jewish? Were there Jews in the church at Rome? And what does Paul being the apostle to the Gentiles, what does that really mean? And there are these Jewish references and this transition where Paul sort of explains that the gospel doesn't just apply to the Jews, it also applies to the Gentiles. This Jewish community in Rome dates back as early as the 2nd century BC. Interestingly, there were Jewish prisoners of war in, in 63 BC that we know of that were marched into Rome and they colonized there. Cicero referenced the size and influence of the Jewish colony in Rome in 59 BC, for example. In AD 19, we know that the Jewish people were expelled from Rome by decree of Emperor Tiberius. We also know in AD 41 through 54, Claudius reigned and the Jewish people were again expelled from Rome. Priscilla and Aquila met Paul when they migrated to Corinth. We we have reference to that in Acts 18.2. That expulsion order was temporary. Less than three years after the death of Claudius, Paul wrote to the Jewish Christians at Rome, and he spoke of their faith as common knowledge. 
It's widely thought that Gentiles were the overwhelming majority of the Church of Rome. You see references to them in in Romans 1, 5, 1, 13, 11, 13 specifically. He later wrote to the Philippians from Rome, and Paul intimated at least that it was among the Gentiles that the gospel had taken hold in Rome. We see references to that in Philippians 1, 13 and Philippians 4, 22. So the, the Roman church probably began in the hearts of the Jewish people, but it had a Gentile tone, a Gentile majority, if you will, by the time Paul wrote this epistle. It's commonly thought, and we're guessing at this, obviously, but that the Gentiles comprised about 65 or so percent of the church at Rome and the Jewish people about 35% or so. So let's answer the question where, just for perspective, because I think this is helpful, where was Paul when he wrote this epistle? He was in Corinth. He wrote Romans after he wrote the Corinthian epistles, which can be confusing because the order is reversed in, in the canon of Scripture. Centria is the port of Corinth that Paul referenced in Romans 16.1. Phoebe was a member of the church at Corinth, and it appears, we believe, she, she carried the letter, she probably carried the letter to the Roman church from Corinth. Acts 24 talks about the men mentioned in Rome, the men mentioned in Acts 20, verse 4, as being in Rome, were the same men who were with Paul at Corinth. So we've got definitely got a length from the church at Corinth to the church at Rome. As far as when Paul wrote the letter, for those of you who enjoy the details of history, it's really near the end of Paul's three-month stay in Corinth, and we believe in late March in AD 57. Scholars dispute now whether whether it was AD 57 or 58, but it's agreed that Phoebe delivered the letter in March of one of those two years. If you look at the map, it looks like to our modern eyes that Corinth and Rome, obviously there's a, there's a way to get there by land, but the quickest way is through the Mediterranean Sea from east to west. So the purpose of the letter to the church at Rome is, is I think important to know as we approach this book and just thinking about this in context, Paul was enlisting support for his Western missionary campaign. And that was part of the purpose of this writing. And a secondary purpose was to enlist prayer support for his, his upcoming trip to Jerusalem. And you can see that near the end of the book in chapter 15 of Romans verses I think it's 30 through 33. He was rightly concerned about his safety. He was concerned about the outcome of this trip. And I, I want to be careful not to be guilty of eisegesis and speculation. And when I do speculate, I'll try to, I'll try to talk about that as, uh, as speculation. But I think I get the sense, uh, we get the sense, scholars get the sense that Paul was worried about his safety. And so he he wanted to write a thorough compendium of theology to this church at Rome. He expresses his love for them throughout this book, 
both directly and indirectly. And I think he was really concerned about the fact that they did not have apostolic guidance. He knew of their love for our Lord. And he, on a a heartfelt basis, wanted to write a thorough compendium of theology. And that's what he did. He was emphatic, Paul was, in his claim that he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And Rome was the the capital of the Gentile world. Now, you've probably studied Roman history, and you know that they had many idols, graven images that they worshipped. And just interestingly, and, and I think this is helpful by way of backdrop, the church at Rome, if you think about it, would have been thought of as atheists during this time, wouldn't they? Because these people were not mainstream worshipers. They were not spiritually part of the mainstream. They were, they were kind of the odd people out because of this Christos, this Jesus Christ they talked about who had been crucified. So Paul claimed he was the apostles to the Gentiles. He talks about this at several points in, in several of his epistles. He knew that the Roman church began without apostolic leadership, and he wanted to add validity in a sense. He, he wanted to instruct the Romans in the faith. And I believe that's why, and scholars believe, that that's why he, he wrote so thoroughly and beautifully to this church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, he was fearful about this trip to Jerusalem. I mentioned that. And he wanted to deposit a, a theology of the Christian faith in written a changeless form. You know, he wanted to go on record. The capital city of the empire was an appropriate place for this letter containing theological truth. The Romans had a problem in a sense, and that was these idols, this idol worship. And they were, they were smart people and they thought of themselves as the center, uh, rightfully in a way, center of the civilized world, didn't they? And so Paul felt that this was very important. There was probably some fear about his upcoming trip to Jerusalem. And all of that led to the writing of this beautiful book. Now, some have disputed, interestingly, Paul's authorship of this epistle to the church at Rome, this book of Romans in the New Testament. Well, there's some problems with that. There are some references that only Paul would make. Chapter 11, verse 13, chapter 15, verses 15 to 20, among them. And then he claims to be the author in uh, verses 1 and 7 of chapter 1 of Romans. But then, and I, I think those are important pieces of evidence. I think sometimes we say, you know, when Scripture makes a claim that, oh, no, we need, we need outside verification somehow, and I, I don't know that we do. But it, I think it's helpful that historians like Clement of Rome Justin Martyr, Polycarp, and others, the Muratorian canon and Old Latin and Syriac versions are are all external writers and documents that quote from Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, and they consistently ascribe authorship to Paul. So further, this book, Romans, has been recognized as written by Paul and part of the canon of Scripture since the time of Irenaeus in AD 202, I believe it was. This is evidence of Paul's authorship and authenticity in, in the next generation or two following 
Paul's time, and that's important. So I, I think we can can be comfortable that the Apostle Paul wrote this book of Romans, this epistle to the church at Rome. Now, that's all well and good and a bunch of history and might seem a little dry if you're not into that sort of thing, if you're not one of those people like me who needs to know the background or finds it helpful to know the background. I just think the mindset, to the extent that we can learn it, that Paul had as he approached this book is important. So I said all that to kind of set the stage, but a good question that you could ask is why are you taking podcast time and kind of clumsily at that to study the book? Why is this book of the Bible so important? And I'm going to give you a couple of things, maybe three or more. It's Paul's theology of the Christian faith in a written changeless form. Now I grew up, I'm sure I heard some great teaching along the way, not to discredit anyone, especially people who've died over the years and are no longer here and who invested their time and energy in my life. I, I'm appreciative. I'm grateful of that. But I grew up not quite seeing it this way. I, I grew up not quite understanding the beauty of the theology in Romans. And I've understood a, a principle as an adult that you probably find helpful as well. And that is Bible study, studying the Greek words, studying the usage, uh, using a Strong's concordance and other tools can be, and even commentaries can be helpful from time to time. But studying this particular book, even just reading it again and again and again, reveals new truth. I find that fascinating. I talk to my students all the time about this. It is amazing that scripture really is alive. It really is piercing. It impacts us differently over the course of time. So I think one reason for studying this epistle to the church at Rome is that it is a complete theology of the Christian faith. Now, I've heard so many sermons where pastors just kind of bounce around, and there, there are some verses in Romans that sort of fit the thematic of sermons that pastors do from time to time. And sometimes it's, I'll, I'll say, convenient to take certain passages in this book out of context and use them for a topical sermon. And if done well and in respect to the context, with respect to the context, then I think that's just fine. But I think it's more helpful just to study the entire book from the entire letter from start to finish because there's a flow to it that is beautiful. Paul is building as he goes and you're going to, oh my goodness, we have some moments in this book that just really they reference the entire previous part of the book, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a beautiful way. So we're going to try to walk through it methodically just one step at a time. It is it is a beautiful theology of the Christian faith. If, God forbid, I had to go to prison or had to be isolated down at the other end of the Amazon River, and I only got one book of the Bible in hard copy to take with me, and that was the only thing that I could read during some lengthy period of time, I would select this book of Romans because it is the theology of the Christian faith. Now, we're all theologians. Don't let anyone tell you that you had to go to seminary or Bible college or summer camp or anything else to become a theologian. You and I are theologians. We participate in the study of God, and we all do it. Some just don't do it very well. 
So let's all embrace this book. I hope you will. I hope you'll read along with me as, as we go. But there's a second reason for studying, I think, the book of Romans. Why, why Romans, you ask? I, I think the, there's another reason. The book's theme is the righteousness of God. This is about God's character. When we say the righteousness of God, the word justification comes to mind. And, and in Romans, that this justification by faith or trusting in Christ alone for salvation, these, these are supporting themes in the book of Romans. And I cannot imagine what is more important, a, a more important topic for us to study, this righteousness of God. Now, to do that, we've got to know a few other things. That we, we've got to know who God is, don't we? I mean, we have to start, our presupposition coming to this book has to be that we have some idea of the character of God. I'm going to talk about that in just a few minutes. I always start my classes each year by drawing an oval with God in it, the name God, G-O-D, and then down below I draw a little stick figure and I write man next to the stick figure, and I draw an arrow that goes both up and down, connecting the two, and I talk about the fact that we need our presupposition coming into the book of Romans has to be an understanding of who God is, who man is, and how God relates to man. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. So the the theme of the book is the righteousness of God, or you could talk about sub-themes or supporting themes, justification by faith, or trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And I cannot imagine what would a more important topic for us to study. And then a third reason for studying Romans is just the, and I, I love this, it's beautiful, we sometimes forget to do this, but the the strong endorsements of the saints over the years, going going way back to, to Martin Luther and John Wesley and, and, and John Calvin and, and countless others. We could go forward today and name people like R.C. Sproul and John Piper and John MacArthur and Tim Keller and a host of others, Tim Challies and, and others, and lots of people in between. And I, I know I'm leaving out some folks that you respect when I limit the list to that group, but suffice it to say that there, there's this endorsement of theologians and endorsement of pastors over the years that they recognize that these theologians recognize the importance of the book of Romans to the entire Christian faith. So the theme of the book is, and we've already said this, it's the righteousness of God. Justification by faith is a, a sub theme and trusting Christ alone for salvation. But key concepts to think about as we as we go through this book are the just shall live by faith, the gospel is for the Gentiles, and this one book, as we study it, you'll see, as we, we're really overviewing it, but as you study it at home, this one book will open the landscape, the whole landscape of the entire Bible. Our goal is to learn as we go what trusting in Christ alone for salvation is all about through studying this book. So 
trusting in Christ alone for salvation is our goal in studying this book. And that is a beautiful concept. Now, just a little bit of housekeeping before we go back and talk about who God is and who man is and how God relates to man, just for a moment. We're going to kind of move quickly through sections of scripture. We'll camp on some concepts that are very important in some of the key chapters, key sections. We're not going to gloss over any of it. I hope you'll read as we go. Maybe start by reading the first few chapters and read them again and again and again over the next few weeks as we go. And you'll kind of see the rhythm that we embrace as we cruise through this book. But I hope that what we don't do is take a particular theological camp and try to interpret the book of Romans in the context of that camp, because that would be eisegesis. And we want to do exegesis. We want to read out of the scripture what it actually says. And we're going to do so imperfectly. One of my dear friends who lives now out in Berkeley, California, who was our pastor, Mike Francis explained to me one time when I, he had asked me to speak to an adult group of our congregation on either a Sunday or Wednesday night, I don't remember which. And I was going to actually, interestingly, uh, cruise through some of the truth in the book of Romans. And I called him and said, I'm so concerned about being a heretic, uh, espousing heresy. And he put my mind at ease by saying, unless you just read the scripture, you will, in a technical sense, be guilty of some level of heresy. That's not to say you shouldn't study and prepare and try to be careful with what you do and don't say. So I'm going to try to be careful. I have taught this material for years to Circle Christian School 11th and 12th graders, and I'm going to you know, reformat it for this podcast, and I'm going to exercise care, but I would ask for your grace as we go through this. And my prayer is that God uses these concepts, not my words, but Paul's words from Scripture to change your mind on biblical truth or to refresh your memory on biblical truth or perhaps even change your life and my life with this justification, this doctrine of justification by faith. Because if it grips you, if it grips us, then it is life-changing. I tell my students, we will fail if we try to live life by checklist. If we grow up with a a list of Christian do's and don'ts. Here's what a Christian does. Here's what a Christian doesn't do. And that's all there is to our faith. I know this higher power, this big man upstairs concept, this good Lord concept. And, you know, there's a, there's a deity of some kind. I'm a, I'm a deist but, uh, who lives by a checklist. Then I'm just going to frustrate myself. And I'm not going to enjoy the beauty of justification by faith the way Paul explains it here in the book of Romans. So I want to take a few minutes and just talk about who God is and who man is and how God relates to man. And this is, I'm just making introductory comments. I think as we go through today, I'm just making introductory comments. I think as we go through the the book, the letter, I think we'll add some flesh to this skeleton sort of outline today. But it's interesting. I I ask my students to describe God in our first class each year, and it's really amazing. I've got notepads of notes from, it's, it's really kind of backwards in, in my classes. I, I mean, I encourage students to take notes, require them to take notes at times, but I actually take notes about the things they say because 
pre-COVID, and I, I hope to do this next year too. I think we're kind of back to to the pre-COVID environment in, in a sense. And I would have a couple markers up at the front and a big whiteboard, you know, say a four by eight foot whiteboard. And I would have students walk up one at a time as they thought of them, or I'd get a one student to do the writing and ever, have everybody else sort of shout out the answer to the question who God is. And usually what we do in those sessions is we focus on his attributes and, and it's funny because students are smart uh, the circle Christian school students are very smart and they're not just smart. They're godly. They come from great families. They've, their theology is really good and they think of God in terms of his character and attributes quite well. And so we'll start with he's holy and you know, that means he's set apart. Sometimes somebody will say he's, they'll use this big fancy word for his transcendence, his being apart from us, his, which is similar to his holiness. It's being out of this world, apart from us. God is not to be governed by anyone else. There's no higher power. If we can imagine, a theologian said, if we can imagine a, a God that is bigger in any sense than the God we're imagining, we're not imagining the true holy God. And he's apart from us. We're not going to fully understand him. And therefore we're going to have connective tissue that we that we miss, that we don't fully comprehend. There, scripture tells us there are mysteries that we don't just study scripture and study it and study it to solve all the mysteries. We study it to fuel relationship with him, which kind of gets us to who is man and why, how does God relate to man? But Specifically, we we try to talk about God's character and we talk about his omniscience, that is his being all-knowing in addition to his holiness, his omnipotence, his being all-powerful, his omnipresence being everywhere at once. And those words just roll right off our tongues, my mine in particular, because I know that he is all those things. And he's also omnibenevolent, meaning all-loving. All and we talk, for example, about omnipresence as if as if it's not a big deal. But when you think about God being everywhere at once, that's more than I can handle. That's more than I can comprehend. I mean, I can't even think like Central Florida, where I live. Um, you know, we have a few million people here, depending on which counties you include. And I can't even imagine God being present everywhere in Central Florida, much less the entire state of Florida, which doesn't look that big on a map, but We've got 22 or 23 million people and lots of good sized cities and people spread out all over the place. And how is God everywhere at once? How's he in Pensacola and Miami and Orlando and Jacksonville and Tampa all at the same time? And, and not just those places. And I know this probably sounds silly, but how's he in the small towns too? And, and in everywhere uh, in, in nature and in, in, people and executing an incredibly complex plan. So uh, we, we talk about those things. And I think it's important to think about that when we think about God's character as we start to move into this book of Romans. In addition to that, we talk about God's righteousness. So not just his holiness, his being set apart, but his being right, morally correct, morally pure. And as we study the book of Romans, we're going to learn that rightness in a human sense, and I want to say this respectfully, reverently, but in a human sense, that places some restrictions on God. 
and what God can and cannot do. I, I guess said maybe more clearly what God will and will not do. God will not sin, cannot sin because he's perfect, because he's pure, because he's holy. And oh my goodness, when we start writing these key words on this whiteboard and we say these thoughts out loud, then we start to expand them into just all kinds of detailed descriptors for who God is. And there's usually a turning point in the middle of this, and it's imperfect because we're just all shouting out these characteristics of God. But we, then we talk about his imminence, his, his being with us, his being close to us, his being relational with us. The same God who is transcendent, who's out of this world and apart from us and bigger than we can comprehend and all the omnis and righteous and meaning morally pure and, and completely just and, and all of those things. That same God is also lovingly fostering, lovingly executing relationship with us. And if you really ponder that, and I, I, I know you're probably thinking this is so simple. Why are you taking our time to tell us this? If you're still with me, and I hope you are, I hope you just ponder that for a moment, that it's overwhelming that God isn't just loving. He is love. He invented love. His essence is love. And we'll prove that as we go through this letter. So yes, he, he is sinless and that restricts him in a sense. But I'll tell you something that just popped into my head that we don't do. We don't get into these esoteric arguments about could God make a stone that he couldn't move or some of those other arguments that you hear from time to time. Those aren't important. We're talking about God's character and specifically who he is and who man is and how, how he relates to us. So, so he's not only transcendent, he's also eminent and that, and he's loving and, and gracious and merciful. We talk about the difference between grace and mercy. It's important to know those concepts and people kind of confuse them conversationally from time to time. His, his mercy involves the withholding of punishment. His grace is the giving of undeserved goodness to us said really simply. And there are different types of grace and we'll, we'll try to talk about some of them. There are different perspectives on grace and mercy. God, doesn't condone sin, but he's gracious with respect to our sin, exceedingly gracious. And we'll talk about that as we go through this book. In terms of how God relates to man, we can't have that conversation without talking about the importance of Jesus Christ, God in flesh. God sent his son to this earth to be born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, to die on a cruel Roman cross, to be raised on the third day, conquering sin and death on our behalf, was seen by many, ascended, sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us today, pleading for us today. And he will return, he will come again to this earth. And as we think about that beautiful gospel, that is, Jesus Christ is, primarily how God relates to us, to men. He sent the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk about that and what that actually means to us, what that means to our lives as we go through this book of Romans. But God relates to man through the person 
of Jesus Christ, said more theologically correctly, the finished work of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to talk about during this series of episodes. I hope you will enjoy this series. We will sometimes parse words that are important. At other times, we will move rather rapidly through the text. I want to focus on the key concepts, the key thoughts that Paul is getting across. And we'll start with chapter one next week. Chapter one of Romans, some of you probably have this idea if you've been in the church for years that, oh, that's the chapter that has this theme. Well, I'm going to get us to focus on kind of the first three chapters and the themes that Paul writes about in those chapters. There's some beautiful truth. Paul's going to establish his apostolic authority in a humble way. He addresses the gospel right away, and he immediately launches into our problem as people, as mankind, and he does so beautifully. He always comes back in this book to our great hope in Jesus Christ, and I hope you'll think about that as you read this book. If you want to jump ahead a little bit, just read the first three chapters of Romans between now and and our next time together, and you might have an opportunity to do that for a few weeks. So I hope this overview is helpful. Play it back and listen to it before the next episode, maybe, and be ready next week to launch right into chapter one. Thank you for your support of Relentless Truth. When this journey began almost a year ago, I couldn't have imagined that this work would be, uh, frankly, important to much of anyone. I started this podcast at the urging of some students, dear students who are precious and insightful, and I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful for you, the listener. I hope you'll share these uh, episodes on social media. I hope that you will share them with friends. Just send the link via text or email to friends and ask them to listen if you would. I think this is I know this is important. This series coming up is the most important information, the most important thing that we can talk about. Now, we're going to interrupt it a couple of times with some conversations, some interviews. Charlie Parrish is coming back in a couple of weeks to be with me again to talk about an important topic, but we're going to cover the entire book of Romans, Paul's entire epistle to the church at Rome. So please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us at John Warren Media. Dot com. Send a message through the contact form there or an email to john at johnwarrenmedia.com. I look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren. Music